Our man, Wall Street Journal music and arts contributor, author of Anatomy of a Song, The Oral History of 45 Iconic Hits That Changed Rock, R&B, and Pop, the one, the only, Mark Myers, double M, M squared, in the building. Hey, guys. I got to tell you, reading your piece, I'd forgotten that Johnny Cash covered this, and I went back and listened to his cover as well. He's doing his speak-sing thing. It's dead. It's like you can't even tell it's the same song, hardly. I know, I know. it's really flat. It's really flat. Yeah, you know, funny thing about Kenny Rogers, um, most people don't really know much about his background, right? I mean, most people think like he started a chicken restaurant or something, right? We talked about that. Kenny Rogers <laughs> Roasters. Still very big in Malaysia. Yeah, and on Seinfeld, right? Seinfeld yeah. reruns. Um, or, you know, he played poker or something. I mean, nobody really knows much about the guy's background. Um, but, you know, Kenny Rogers is a pretty big powerhouse for country you know mostly it's mostly country a bit of crossover i mean he wins three grammys over the course of his career right he's got 21 number one country singles 34 pop hits 34 pop hits. pop now on the billboard pop chart two number ones remember the two number ones islands through the years the islands through, in the stream through the years and lady that's Lady. right. Lady. That's a solid gold classic. That's yeah. a yeah. Lionel Richie penned classic. Exactly. So you said two. So we had two different songs. Was it Island in the Stream? Yeah. Or was it? No, okay. it was with Dolly. Dolly. Yeah, it was Dolly. Um, the Gambler goes to number one. This is in 1978. It goes to number one in country chart. And it's number 16 um, on the pop chart in 78. And keep in mind, in 1979, the year of Saturday Night Fever, the year of Billy Joel's The Stranger, the Gambler wins Best Country Song and Best Country Vocal Performance Male. And it's two Grammys, you know, in a big year. Um, but who, you know, who is Kenny Rogers, right? It's like people just think of him as the guy on the Geico ad for the most part. I mean, that's really the most recent thing, right? Where I know, he plays with the, gambler? the Gambler. Yeah, where he plays the Gambler. You know, it's funny. Now that I'm thinking about it, I don't, how many other artists wound up with a nickname? that was a hit for them. In other words, Kenny, Kenny is the gambler. That's his nickname. But it's his song. The reason he has that nickname is because he had that song. Yeah. How many other artists have a nickname that was one of their hits? The first thing that came to my mind was Jerry Lee Lewis, but he, didn't, he, he never did a song called The Killer. Right. So it's right, like I, the man in black. He never did a song yeah, called the man in black. Right, right, right. So they became, you know, these nicknames because of attributes of who they were, as opposed to being identified with that song. And the irony, of course, that I learned from your piece is that Kenny was never much into gambling, but they called him the gambler. Well, he just said or he wasn't poker. very. He just said he wasn't very good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just play. like, but you know, it's funny that video did a lot for him, and for some reason, the look and the sound of that song just became his fingerprint. I mean, it really became who he is, whether whether he really was that or not. Yes. He became the gambler, the guy who shows up, you know, modest, sits down, and wipes everybody out of chips. Right? Well, as I said, I, I said yesterday, they made TV movies based on the song. Correct. Right. And I, this morning, I said that they, he was on the Muppets recreating the the lyrics from the Gambler. He's sitting on a train bound for nowhere with three Muppets <laughs> singing the Gambler. <laughs> That's, you know, the thing with Kenny is he crosses over. He's so likable, and his voice is so deep, and it's so soothing. It sounds like he's downed the, the last swallow of whiskey when he sings it. Like, he I've really, been, I, really I, I, I must have listened to The Gambler, I'm not kidding, five times mm -hmm. on the way to work this morning. And the 
way it's his, a croak right it, yes it's almost like he's telling you the night you know the night before christmas right it's he's telling you the story and as he's telling you it's like grandpa's telling it to you it's it's so warm yeah it's it's almost journalistic in that it's almost like he was sitting in the seat across from the two people Right. In other words, he's sort of describing it or it's almost like a diary entry. Yeah, he is the kid learning from the gambler. Right. He really is. Right. And then one thing, you know, with that voice, you think he's the gambler himself. Yeah. You know, that he's yeah. the one giving the advice. But he's the Greek chorus, <clears throat> really. Very good. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but who is this guy, Kenny Rogers? Right. You know, who who is this guy who's on TV variety shows with the perfect gray beard and the long hair? I mean, who is this guy? So, you know, he's born in. I mean, it's amazing who this guy is, really, when you think about his background. He's born in Houston in 1938. He's the fourth of eight children. So he's in the wow. middle. Uh, he grows up really poor in federal housing project down there. Um, in 1956, he starts a rockabilly group um, and. You know, in high school, it's called, I think it's called the Scholars. Um, but he has a hit when he starts to sing professionally. Everybody realizes he has a really nice voice, got a really good voice. He should be singing. And his first hit is in 1958. It's his name. I mean, he's the solo, but it's Kenneth Rogers, right? Um, and the song is That Crazy Feeling. And he performs on American Bandstand. Get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Let's listen to a little bit of Kenneth Rogers, that crazy feeling in 1958. Classic 58 sound, right? This could have been Dion. Yeah. It's not just the way you say hello whenever we should Listen so to how high his voice is. Yeah, he's got like a Dion thing going, right? Um, so he really starts in doo-wop, in, vo in vocal harmony. That's, that's where he starts. And the hit does well locally, but it doesn't really do much beyond a point. Uh, but in 1961, this is really a crazy group. In 1961, he joins this group called the Bobby Doyle Three. And they're kind of a sort of a jazz vocal group. You know, it's sort of a jazzy, hip-swinging kind of thing. It's it's not doo-wop anymore. It's not certainly not country, but it's it's Kenny, it's Bobby Doyle, and a guy named Ken Russell. Um, let's listen to the Bobby Doyle Three. It's a good day. This is from 1962. Why do I waken with the yearning to be learning what's the store for It's almost like a toothpaste ad, born? right? Why all of a sudden this appealing kind of feeling that can make a fella glad that he was born? There is no way. Now Kenny's that high voice, what they call the hot notes. Yeah. It's like the four freshmen or like the new Christy the minstrels or something right. like that. Yeah. Wow. So it's that's real jazzy vocal harmony. Um Kenny played bass uh, with this group. It's it's um it was a, the early 1960s had a lot of these vocal harmony groups, um, similar to Hilo, similar to the Four Freshmen groups like the Accidentals. I mean, there's a lot of them, and because they're all doing well, it's like three guys singing or two guys and a gal singing, and they can go to clubs. You know, you can really tour with this thing, and it's not going to cost you a whole lot in terms of lugging instruments. You can just show up and start singing. Um, the group. Disbands in 1965. So um, Kenny Rogers has a, like I said, he's those high notes. He's hitting, he's hitting those hot notes. Um, but they disband in 1965. 
And Kenny joins, you know, by 1965 with Dylan and the women folk and Joan Baez, there's a real folk pop thing going on. Before, Just before, it's, you know, it's while the Beatles are here, but folk is playing a big role. He joins the new Christy Minstrels in 1966, which is sort of a, it's sort of a square country harmony group you know they they have a couple of hits uh mostly christmas album stuff really but um it's it's a folky thing but let's let's listen to kenny with the the new christy minstrels um what the world needs now 66 what the world needs now so very wide vocal harmonies. It's a go-go kind of beat here. You can almost frug to it. Um, and again, you that's... You can almost frug to yeah, it? Yeah. Remember you talked about the frug? Yeah. The go- it's almost like a go-go. You can oh, almost okay. go-go that to dance. it, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. See, I just mentioned New Christy Minstrels. I didn't realize he was actually in them. I was just saying it sounded like it. Yeah. Very, really, good, uh, really good nail there. But I mean, oftentimes we listen to these roads to an artist, to who they become, and and you hear who they become as they become it. You, we're not hearing the beginnings of Kenny Rogers. It's almost like he had his voice box taken out and, and a new one put in. Yeah, on the other hand, Kenny, if Kenny's anything, he's an in, in, incredible vocalist, right? It's just a beautiful sounding voice. I mean, it's no other way to describe Kenny Rogers. It's just a beautiful sounding voice. And he really does gravitate toward groups where the goal of these groups is beautiful vocal harmony. And he's always in a beautiful vocal harmony setting, no matter what group he's in, but because he's, he's suited to that. But he's an intimate singer. Like it sounds like he he's becomes singing an it in singer. your ear. Yeah. So these vocal harmony groups sound far away to me, which is so strange. How he gets closer and closer to your ear, like yeah. over the years, through yeah. the years. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, Kenny's a vocal. He's he's a team player, right? That's what a team. You know, vocal harmony group is about team. He has his zone at that alto zone. That's his bag. He's not bass. He's not tenor, and he fits in. He knows how to vocal harmonize. So whether it's do up in '58 or the Kenny Doyle three in '61 or the new Christy Minstrels, new Christy Minstrels, um, they're corny and kind of funny square today massively huge i mean they sell a lot of records i mean they're, they're just very very big you have to remember the country at that point in time not everybody's listening to the beatles first of all the beatles are just mostly for teenage girls um and most of the pop stuff on there is for young kids but there's this young adult audience that you know, sort of gravitates toward bossa nova toward Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. There's a whole segment of music that is going after this really large group called Young Adults. And that's what this new Christy Minstrels thing is all about. And in fact, that's what Kenny's all about. It's it's appealing to the young adult. Um, so, you know, you've got this 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 new Christy Minstrels thing going on. Um, <clears throat> we just listened to What the World Needs Now in 66. But the times are pulling ahead faster than these folk pop groups can keep up. I mean, folk pop, if we're tracing lineage, really becomes sunshine pop, like the cow sells. I mean, it gravitates into something else by the late 1960s. Like, what was the biggest hit, like Windy, that came out of that? Something yeah, like but that. they're all covers. Yeah. I mean, their biggest hit is actually a Christmas album. I mean, that was wow. their, their Christmas album went through the roof. Um, uh, so... You know, the new Christy Minstrels Christmas album. I think they even did three or four Christmas albums. It's just this middle-of-the-road, middle-America music that wasn't being addressed by 
the, the British Invasion or the California Sound or New York. Not even folk was addressing, uh, not even the Dylan era folk is addressing middle America. The new Christy Mistral. safety Mistels, stuff. Like exactly. the safe music. Stuff you could just listen to while you're cooking. Very stuff milk you can listen toast. to with your family. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so by the late, by the mid 1960s, um, the new Christy Minstrels, um, they're not keeping up, you know, pop, pop folk is sort of falling behind. It's just the music, rock, Beatles, Stones, it's just moving too fast. And they, this stuff doesn't even sound right, you know, by 1967. It's just off. Um, and Kenny knows it, and he leaves the group with Mike Settle, Terry Williams, and Thelma Camacho, and they leave to form the first edition, right? Kenny Rogers in the first edition in 1967, which also is sort of a mainstream, just a little more edge, you know, a little more psychedelic. <clears throat> but for the most part, it's kind of folk pop with a, with a, I would say it's folk pop with a psychedelic schmear, you know? It's just, yeah, it's a, a psychedelic schmear. Psychedelic schmear. That's very know? Brooklyn. <laughs> um, their biggest hit, they have a hit. You know, and you know it. It's um, just dropped in. It reached number five on the Billboard Pop Chart. Uh, let's listen to "Just Dropped In" to see what my condition see what see what condition my condition was in. Matt, yeah, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Everybody knows my this. It's the first edition. It's again real mainstream. First time you smoked weed. Yeah, it's it's tie dye shirt, but the tie dye was all wrong. <laughs> Sandals, but they're flip flops from Corvettes. You know, it's uh, it's the hippie thing, but it's kind of like it's so hippie. It's like it's like mall hippie kind of bargain store hippie, yeah. right? Mall's almost too good for it. Um, but you know, it's like there's every we. The interesting thing about the '60s is it's not Woodstock, right? It's not just Monterey Pop. Monterey Pop, that stuff was great because Life Magazine photographed it. There was a lot of drama, a lot of cool-looking people. But beyond that, below that, to the sides of that, were all kinds of strata that of music that um, tried to nibble a little bit at it, but weren't committed and first edition is sort of didn't know yet how it was going to go over right so and remember that was the drug culture if you got too close to it you know you might be branded with it like so it's it, those were still fringe acts as much as we remember woodstock in a certain way now it's what it started right Right. You know? And like they're not going to get on Rowan and Martin's laughing and sell, <laughs> sell a million records. <laughs> right. Um, or the Smothers Brothers. Exactly. Um, but the guy, a little footnote here, which is kind of interesting. The guy who produced that song um, just, just dropped in. You know, you know who the guy is, the guy who produced it. Uh, Matt, do we have Mike Post's? Uh, I don't even want to. Get out of here. I don't want to say it, but can you play a little bit of that? Mike Post of Law and Order produced that song. Law and Order, the Rockford Files. Yeah. God, like pretty yeah. much every yeah. 70s TV yeah. show, he was the themed guy. Mike Post produced Just Dropped In by the First Holy Edition. Smokes. I know, it's cool, right? Um, but, you know, they also had another hit. Um, Matt, do we have Ruby? Let's, let's check that out. 1969. Again, first edition. There he is. Kenny Rogers in the first edition. I didn't know this was with the first edition. Yeah. I'm obsessed with this song. I talked about it yesterday on yeah. air because it's so dark. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of got a Marlboro Man beat to it also. You know, it's it's very much, in some ways, it's similar 
<clears throat> to the gambler in yeah. that it's got a train sound, right? It's going, yeah. it's going places. It's a, tr it's a, tr it's what I call a, a travel song. It's, it's moving. It's, but it's moving. another story where it's song story where he's telling it right in your ear. He's, right. You are Ruby. Good point. He's telling it to you. Indeed, indeed. Uh, in '76, Kenny leaves the first edition for a solo career. He's finally, finally, someone said to him, you know, it's. It's you can do it on your own. You're a solo artist. If you don't need a group behind you, you can do it by yourself. Um, so he signs up at United Artists, and he's being produced by Larry Butler. Uh, Kenny has a now. Here's the thing: we think of him in those, you know, let's for lack of a better word, corny vocal groupy kind of things, middle of the road kind of things. Um, Kenny. People think he came out of country, but in in effect, he is more mainstream, young adult, you know, um, adult, easy listening, adult listening kind of. He crosses over into country, right? He's not a country star from the start. Yeah, like she said, generally speaking, when you do these, we could see the footsteps to see where they go. And at that time... Every country artist was hoping at some point to cross over into pop. He's doing the he's going back over the wall the other way. They want to produce him. Larry Butler believes he's got a real big future in country. And lo and behold, Kenny has a string right out of the gate of number one country songs. It's one after the next. I mean, it's just you look at the chart. The first one, um, the songs by Roger Bowling and Hal Bynum made him a country superstar. His first number one. It was a number five pop hit, and that was Lucille in 1977. In a bar in Toledo, across from the depot. I keep in mind, while everybody's listening to all of the countries, the tramps, I mean, this is the middle of the disco period, right? And... The country market isn't being addressed. I mean, Larry Butler figures that this voice is perfect for the country market. You know, the George Jones thing, that that country politan sound, which is very polished country that was big in the '60s. You know, it it's time for sort of a sort of a rustier, more more croaky, gravelly, self-reflective sound. And um, the next hit. Kenny has. <clears throat> Again, Lucille was 77. Um, this is also in 77, his next number one hit, which is Daytime Friends. Mm. Right? And he'll tell her he's working late again. But she knows too well something I mean, his sound is like an older guy confessing while driving a pickup truck someplace. I mean, it, but he's he, not that old, though, right? No, At this point, he's no. still a relatively young guy. Yeah, yeah, but he's not 18, right? right. You know, he's, he's people can hear in him. They're, you know, they, they hear themselves. Guys hear themselves. Women hear the boyfriend they didn't marry. I mean, there's a lot going on in that voice while you're thinking about it. Um, so 1977, he's lucky with Lucille, number one, Daytime Friends, number one, and he records Love or Something Like It in 1978. Guess what? It's number one. It goes to number one on the country chart. Show me a bar with a good-looking woman. Good overdub. Just get out of my way. Turn on the jukebox. I'll show you a song you should play. It's like Steve Miller. Yeah. Sooner or later. So that's another number one, which, you know, 
which brings us to the gambler. Um, Can I just ask where yeah. the coward of the county is? Because for me, the coward of the county is like best friends with the gambler. It is. Uh, you know, I'm not sure where that fits in. In uh, the timeline. Yeah, and I'm not sure what it reached. You know, it, it's just... It's another number one. Yeah, it's, but I just it's, a, it's after the gambler. It's after the gambler. Yeah, it's after the gambler. Okay, because yeah. then the gambler sets him up to tell these stories. Story songs. Yeah, okay. I mean, All that's right. where Larry Butler puts him. We got a lot more to go. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back on Feedback. Down my last swallow. Then he bombed a cigarette and asked me for a light. And the night got deathly quiet. And his face lost Feedback all Feedback returns in just a moment. play the game, boy. Taking you inside the making of a hit. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. Every gambler knows that the secret to surviving. All right, so uh, Mark Myers is here. He's holding uh, wide aces over kings, talking us through the uh, story of how Kenny Rogers aced the gambler. You know, during the commercial, we were talking, and you said you weren't sure how I was going to, how this song was going to go over with me. And then you mentioned The Devil Went Down to Georgia. You had that same feeling. Both The Gambler, gambler and The Devil Went Down to Georgia are two of my go-to karaoke faves. <laughs> so maybe we need a country karaoke Hmm. For future hmm. Interesting. competition, interesting, and you can compete with us because you oh, know. We, did you hear we had a competition, a Christmas no. um, competition? Yeah, yeah. we oh, did. Yeah. We did duets. Uh huh. So maybe you should compete with us in the next oh, round. Yeah. Okay. I'll you know I'll give it a shot. Give it a shot. <laughs> We're always up for guest karaoke right? <laughs> Absolutely. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Bring my kazoo. You know. <laughs> <laughs> the less attention drawn to me, Lori, the better. <laughs> <laughs> I love attention on me. <laughs> so, Not as much as Nick, but. Oh my God! Can you hear yourself? Let's get back to the. Uh, can you hear yourself? Let's get back to the story of the game. So Kenny, Kenny's got Kenny. Kenny has a number Jesus. one hit with Lucille in '77 when he goes solo for United Artists. He's got a number one hit with Daytime Friends in '77, and he does. Then he's got a number one hit in in '78 with Love or Something Like It. So it's one after the next. So Larry Larry Butler's producer is now looking around for a fourth song. And of course, it's the gambler. But let's talk a little bit about this song history. I mean, Kenny Kenny is not the writer of this song. It had nothing to do with the writing of it. Don Schlitz is the uh, writer of the song, of the words and lyrics. And that in itself has an interesting story of how this song, uh, the evolution of this song. Um, Don comes to Nashville um, from, from North Carolina in 1973 at age 20 with 89 bucks in his pocket. And it's one of those stories where... Someone leaves town, like college isn't working out. And they can't kind of, they can't quite figure out what they want to do. They know they they play guitar. They know they kind of write songs and stuff like that. And they say, "Well, let me go to Nashville. Let me see what let me see what I can do." Wanted to be a songwriter, so you know, with eighty nine bucks, he gets on a bus and he he, you know, he gets out in Nashville. And his first job, he's got to pay he's got to pay the rent. Uh, on a one one bedroom efficiency, which we call a one bedroom up north, they call it an efficiency down in Nashville. Um, and Don says, you know, uh, I need a job. So he he works the graveyard shift at Vanderbilt 
university as a computer operator. Now, for those too young to know, um, uh, a computer operator in 1973-74 means you have to keep an eye on a box that's the size of four refrigerators, <laughs> right? You know, the computer today that fits in your hand that you text people with, back then, um, you know, looked like, you know, a, a sort of a, a U-Haul truck. I mean, it was just a massive thing that punched cards. And all you, you know, keeping an eye on the computer meant watching to make sure it was punching cards all night. These things, cards would drop in the slot, and the computer was, was sort of punching cards to evaluate or you know calculate things. Um, Kenny's job, excuse me, uh, Don Schlitz's job was to call the boss if large computer if the large computer stopped punching cards. That that was the job. Like work overnight from like two like eleven o'clock till till seven in the morning, and if the computer stops, call call the boss immediately that it stopped and it needed to be rebooted or recharged. Um, th those were the computers then. No screen, just two sort of reel-to-reel -reel discs turning all the time and punch cards coming out. Well, one morning when, when this graveyard shift ends at the computer factory at Vanderbilt, um, he stops by Bob McDill's office on Music Row. Now, Bob McDill was a, a music writer back in the early 70s, country music writer. And Music Row is sort of like the Times Square or the Strip Sunset Strip, where all the country musicians, all the country songwriters have offices. And uh, it's like the Brill Building, but it's like a strip mall. It's like spread out, right? Um, and uh, Don's smart enough to know, Don Schlitz is smart enough to know that that he, he's, Don's a great guy. I don't know, you know, Don Schlitz is a really great guy. I mean, he's just a really wonderful, warm storyteller. And he's just funny. And he's just a wonderful guitar player and singer. And he was telling me, um, I did this interview, by the way, by Skype. So we're looking at each other and he's playing for me while we're talking is just terrific. Um, and, you know, he, my, my assessment, my assessment of Don is he's very social and he catches on really quickly that Nashville is a networking town. You, you don't show up in Nashville and take over the place. You got to start making, you got to start building bridges with songwriters. You got to kind of get to know this guy who can maybe get you on the radio or this guy who can set you up with a concert and this guy who can talk to somebody else who knows somebody at ASCAP. It's that kind of town. And if you don't, if you, if you don't figure that out, you're going to be a waiter there forever. It's the South. It's just, you know, yeah. polite. It is. It is. It's polite. It's connections. And it's very talented people who can spot talent in others. And if they can spot potential, they'll show you the next way up to the next rung of the ladder. Yeah, apprenticeships. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a perfect way to put it. So Bob McDill is... Um, Don Schlitz's mentor, and they talk songwriting all the time. You know, he constantly goes from his his overnight job to the to the uh, to the music to Music Row to Bob McDill's office. And in '76, you know, a couple of years later, you know, he tells McDill tells him, "Look, if you want to make something of yourself, you got to write songs." And Don says, "Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm writing songs." And he goes, "How many are you writing?" Bob says, and Don says, "Yeah, you know, I've got seven, you know, a couple, seven, eight, and you know." Uh, Bob cracks, cranks back and, you know, creaks back in his chair and he says, son, you know, you've got to write 40 songs a year and they've got to all be radio worthy. I mean, you've got to really step up the game, step it up. Um, so he tries, you know, Don tries and he comes to Bob and he goes, you know, the thing about mentors down at Nashville is they never tell you the whole story, right? They'll give you like 
they'll give you one piece of the puzzle, and then if you come asking for the rest, they'll start to give you piece by piece. Nobody's helping you out down there by giving you the whole recipe for success. They'll say, you know, try writing 40 songs and come back to me, you know? And if you can make it to that rung, they'll give you the next step, and they'll give you the next step. So um, Don goes to him, and he says, I can't, you know, I'm having trouble cranking out 40 songs. I can get 20, but I'm losing. I, I, what's, what's, how do I, how can I get stirred up to get, get the production up? So Bob McDill takes out his guitar and he goes, I'm going to show you something. He says, I'm going to show you open tuning. I'm going to show you an open D tuning. And, you know, that's where, for those who don't know, this is tuning the guitar. So when you're taking those little pegs and tuning the guitar, so when you strum all six strings without putting your fingers on the fret, you've got a D chord. And then when you put your hands on the fret, you can create an A chord and you can create a D chord. It's a very simple thing. Um, but by strumming those three chords, you wind up with what, what uh, Don referred to as a drone sound, right? It's like this droney, it's a, if you, if you, you know, he illustrated this for me on Skype. It's very interesting. If you, if you play these three chords, you get a drone. Why is that important? Because then you've got this white noise where you can start writing songs. It's an easier convenience to start. It, it, it's an easier, it's almost like a trampoline for writing songs. It provides you with this springboard where you can jump up and down on these three chords and you can start, songs start to come to you. So, but as he's walking home, he's hearing these three chords that he played, you know, this D, this A, this, you know, the G, and he's playing them over and over again in his head as he's walking, because this is before the Walkman, this is before anything where you can tape something and start playing it. So he hears those three chords over and over again, and as he's walking home, he starts to write a song. And the song that he starts to hear, first of all, he says, sounds like a train to me when I play these three, you know, there's a train sound to that. And he starts to think of his father, who was a policeman. And um, he starts to think of his father's advice on try to make good decisions, son. Try to, try to use your judgment no matter what you do. You know, try to think it out. Try to think things through, think consequentially, and try to come up with the right decision. So he's got the train sound. He's got the image of his dad uh, giving him good advice. And he comes up with songs about a young guy getting advice from an older guy. The setting is on the train, and he decides to make it about a gambler telling a young guy about, you know, how to how to play life with these games. Now, he how only... he jumps from the father to a gambler is to me the true genius That's of this songwriting. story. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, there's really not much of a connection. It's not like his father said, That's your ace in the hole, son. You know, it's right. like Right, but if he writes a song about my my you know, this is a this is this is about my police officer father. No, no, no. I'm just saying how like, his mind jumps. Correct. Is correct. is the genius yes, of indeed. the song. But yes. to set it on a train and he's never even been on it. First of all, who's never been on a train? He's never been on a train. But, well, the South is about buses, yeah. right? And unless you're traveling to Houston or you're, unless you're traveling, you know, someplace, um, someplace far, you're on a bus. Your short distances are all covered by Greyhound at that point. I mean, maybe trailways. he's been on a subway, but a train bound even in, to in nowhere. In the subway? In, in like the a longer train. Like a, the idea, you know, when you think of the Arlo Guthrie song about the city of New Orleans, the train that uh, tri- you know, travels 500 miles before the day 
is done. Another right. song that you have to do. Right. Um, right. That to me, that's the train bound for no. It, in three or four words, he has given me the setting. I know exactly where he well, is. Possibly it's a mystery train. Right? Yeah, possibly part of it is too. You know, since it has that country western feel. You know, westerns always had that scene on the train. <laughs> right. You know. Right. Except you know, like I maybe asked, he's just seen movies. Except I said to Don, I said, "Did you set this thing in the in the Wild West in the Old West?" He goes, "No." He said, I, I didn't really set it in any point in time. It could have been last week, commuter train. It was it was just that I heard the three chords over and over again and that it was a train and that I had played nickel, dime, poker and like had enough terminology and figured it's got to be dramatic. I can't make it about my father and my conversation with my dad. It's got to be something more universal. So he puts it on a train and it's a, gamb it's a gambler, right? So by the time he gets home, he's got the whole song. He's got the whole song in his head except the last eight lines the last verse the last eight line verse and he sits down at a typewriter because he wrote on a typewriter and he bangs out the lyrics that he has but before he starts he calls the song the gambler um and i said you know why you know you come up with the title right and he says my english teacher taught me a long time ago when i was writing compositions that the title matters more than anything that if you if you if you don't have a title for what you're writing what you're writing is going to be a mess so he had the title right away um and you know he writes the chorus he tick, 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 he bangs out the, the uh, chorus first you got to know when to hold them know when to fold them know when to walk away and i know when to run you never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. And that's just a wonderful chorus, right? Um, as I said, Nashville's a town of, of, of relationships. He plays it for friends and songwriters. One of them is Jim Rushing, who tells him, you know, he plays him a whole bunch of half-baked songs. And, he, and Jim says to him, whoa, stop, stop. What's that song right there? And he goes, oh, it's something I call a gambling. Jim says, finish that one. That's the song. That's a hit. If you finish that one, that's going to be big. So he does. And three connections later, talks to this guy. Somebody talks to that guy. Somebody talks to him, talks to her, talks to him. And it winds up uh, that Bobby Bear, a country singer, uh, records it in early spring of 78 for his album, um, Do We Have Bobby Bear's Version? Let's hit Bobby Bear. This is, this is the first recording of The Gambler. On a warm summer's evening, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up. Now, I advise a listener to listen carefully we to each of these versions that we're going to play because these did not do what these were just songs. They never were released as singles. This one, you know, listen for what's not right about it. Why it's not a single. He commenced to speak. He said, "Son, I made a life." Okay, so close scene. Right, open scene. Larry Butler, um, Kenny's producer, who who also happens to be Johnny Cash's producer at the time in Nashville, um, he's producing Johnny Cash, and he says to Johnny Cash, um, "I got this song called The Gambler. Bobby Bear recorded it. Let me play it for you. I think it might be good for you." So Johnny, you know, listens to it, and Johnny's not you know wound up about it, but he he records it for his album. Um, this is Johnny Cash's. Uh, this is Johnny Cash. Uh, uh, recording The Gambler. This is before, this is right after Bobby Bear, but it's not, it's before Kenny records it. Um, uh, Johnny Cash, The Gambler. About 20 years ago, on a train bound for nowhere, I met up with The Gambler. We were both too tired to sleep. 
So we took turns now, it's interesting staring. here, and I love Johnny Cash, but Johnny Cash doesn't care about this song. You can hear it. He does not give a damn about this song. It's like, whatever, right? It's it's a whatever recording. The gambler could be like the deli guy. Yeah, and it's almost like he's reading, it's almost like he's reading this off of a cereal box, right? There's no, there's no vested emotion. He's not like seeing it in his head. And, you know, look, every great singer, look, no matter who it is, Elvis, Sinatra, you know, Peggy Lee, there's plenty of songs where they weren't into it, and you can hear it, and it doesn't matter. It's just, it's called art. You know, but sometimes it, uh, is that a demo? Or is that a full-on That's recording? That's the recording. That came out in December of that year. Because to me, and it wasn't a single. in both cases that of what we've heard already, when you compare and contrast with Kenny Rogers' version, yes, definitely the lyric, I mean, the um, vocal, but the music too, when I spent, and I'm sure we're going to listen to more of, of Kenny Rogers' version, when I listened to it four or five versions this morning, uh, times this morning, what really hit me was that the music matches Kenny's telling of the song. So when he starts the story, there's this dark sparseness because you don't yet know who the gambler is. Right. And as you get to know him, the music picks up and lightens up. And right. then by the end, when there's the in the darkness, the music fades and it's just Kenny's voice and he tells you the final lesson. Right. So there's this sense that the music and Kenny together makes this sense of this is an event. Those well two put. songs you just played are yep. not events. Uh, the music for Kenny mattered, right? The, the song mattered. That doesn't matter for Bobby Bear. It doesn't matter for, for Johnny Cash. And something else, there's two other important factors here. Kenny looks this over when, when, when Larry says to Kenny, hey, uh, why don't you record The Gambler? Here's Johnny's demo. I think, you know, Kenny goes, I can't do a better job. Than that. He says, you can do a better job than that. Uh, let me see what you can do with it. I think you can bring something to it. Kenny reads down the lyric. And this is really interesting about Kenny because this is where his history and all the stuff that I talked about earlier comes in. He realizes the chorus is buried. It's way too far down. If you listen to these other versions, you don't get to that chorus that I just read before. You don't get to it to like like three minutes, like way down in the in the song. He said, let's move this chorus up. This chorus needs to come a little bit earlier. And Larry also creates an incredible arrangement and a key change that creates drama. Yes. Um, so he, he, you know, Larry does this. So he slip and, and, and he slips into this key change in the fourth verse. Do we have Kenny's? Um, let's play Kenny so we can hear them up against each other. On a warm summer's evening. Now that's a voice that cares. It matters. I met up with a gambler. We were both too tired to sleep. So we took turns of staring out the window at the darkness. That's a, a voice in need of a, it's, it's a voice in search of a flask, right? Mm. And he began to speak. Needs some whiskey on that voice. See the way it kicks in? Yeah. yeah. Now you've got the bass and the drums. And knowing what the cards were. By the way they in fact, you got bass and percussion, not so drums yet. Right. He's also committed to the song. Like you, he's correct. Clearly, he's invested. Yep. And he's while he's singing this, as Kenny told me, he's thinking of Ray Charles. He loved Ray Charles. He saw him when he was little in, in Houston, and he, this is basically a tribute to Ray Charles. See now, now it's, it's bouncing. Now you know the gambler, right. and, and he's a character, right. and that's why it's bouncing. Right. And there's a key change. That's also what makes this thing much more dramatic. Let's take a quick break. We'll get right back to that on Feedback. You got to know when to hold You're listening to Feedback. The stories behind 
behind the hits that shape the world of music. This is Anatomy of a Song on Feedback. Know when to fold up, know when to walk away, and know when to run. You never count. All right, right at 10 o'clock, I'm talking to Paul Stanley. He will be making a big kiss announcement that you'll want to be around for. Until then, Mark Myers is here taking us through how Kenny Rogers aced the gambler. Yeah, you know, the, the, gambling as a song um, topic, as a theme, really is a country thing. You don't really hear, you know, you get a little bit of it in like hard rock, Aerosmith and stuff like that. But the real full-throated gambling, losing everything, coming back, that's a, that's a country thing. That's really a country thing. Uh, let's, let me take you through the history of the gambling song. Um, <clears throat> let's, let's start in 1928 with Jimmy Rogers in the jailhouse now. I had a friend named Ramblin' Bob Who used to steal, gamble, and rob He thought he was the smartest guy in town That's 1928 Jimmy Rogers in the jailhouse now. Let's do, let's jump to 1937, Little Queen of Spades by Robert Johnson. Now let's uh, let's let's jump up to 1952. I mean, these are all from my collection, but I put them together here. 1952, one of my favorites, Hank Williams, "You Win Again." The news is out all over town that you've been seen a running round I know that I what a voice 1963 is we're in countrypolitan it's slick Nashville country Ned Miller from a jack to a king from a jack to a king from loneliness to a way Also in 63, Patsy Cline, Turn the Cards Slowly. Turn the cards slowly while you're dealing, darling. Who's going double deal to win my heart? Turn the cards slowly while you're dealing, And let's go to 63 also from Kid Galahad, Elvis, I Got Lucky. Never found a four-leaf clover to bring good luck to me. No rabbit's foot, no lucky star, no magic wishing tree, but I got lucky. I got lucky. Yes, I got That's from lucky. Kid Galahad, the movie. Um, Buck Owens in 1969 recorded Big in Vegas, but you hear it's it's a gambling and winning and losing is a country thing. With my guitar and my dreams, I had to try to play and sing in Vegas. I love Buck Owens. I love Buck. So great. Let's, uh, it crosses over. This whole thing crosses over to rock, right? The Eagles, Desperado in 1973. Desperado. Gambling song. Why don't you come to your senses? Dolly in 74, Kentucky Gambler. He wanted more from life than four kids and a Two-step. 
and a job in the dark Kentucky mines. And that brings us to the gambler, Kenny Rogers in 1978. And Queen of Hearts, Juice Newton. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Juice Newton. <laughs> well, that's about a card. Is that about gambling Same specifically? Same thing, playing with the Queen of Hearts. Yeah, fair enough. Wow. That's the history of the gambling song from I 1928 to 1978. I love that. We're going to tweet it out, of course, Amazing. at SiriusXM Volume. Read the uh, article tomorrow. George Ezra will be with us, along with Larry Flick. Stick around. It's feedback. Bye. Paul Stanley next. And knowing what the cards were by the way they held their eyes. So if you don't mind my saying, I can see.